So, can you give us a little bit of an introduction of who you are, your background? Sure. Um, so, I, I think you can place me at the intersection between technology and math. So, my background is in telecom engineering, um, but then I also have a PhD in maths. And I started working at Siemens in Germany, um, kind of at a unit that was solving or tackling problems that had some advanced or required some advanced maths and uh, coming from coming in from every business unit. So it could be, you know, dimensioning networks um, like fiber optic networks, um, mobile networks, or it could be even about dimensioning or planning um, electric grids or, or traffic in a city. So. Um, I took a lot of pleasure in in, in solving those things, um, and so that's why I decided to go deeper into the maths and do the PhD. Um, I also, you know, during the PhD, it was a very intensive time. I think in three years, I did like twenty seven patents, um, and and it was about modeling the backend of the internet, uh, which is very exciting because it's actually you use the same maths that you use to describe nature, um, so it's a special type of geometry that you used to, which is fractal geometry, that you used to describe complex stuff in nature, like leaves or branches of a tree. And the internet happens to be that one thing made by, by humans that is so complex that you require that special type of, of maths. I also did um, moved on to, to then working on compilers um, and design of um, domain-specific languages for the banking sector. Um, which then took me to artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning. And then in 2013, I started working with, uh, with cryptography um, from, from the industry perspective. So I started with zero-knowledge proofs, and uh, that ultimately take, took me to um, FHE and multi-party computation. And yeah, the last years I've been focusing on, on multi-party computation. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a lot of interesting things going on over there. <laughs> I guess the the math itself is probably what drove you to crypto. And now you are a founder of Nillion. So what happened in the meantime from getting really interested into crypto to uh, starting your own project in the space? Yeah. So I think it can be, if I had to summarize it in, in one word, it would be Andrew, Andrew Masanto. That's what happened. So I met him back in 2017, I think, through a VC. And back then we started exploring the idea of uh, applying different types of cryptography to different problems in the Web3 space. Um, so he's he's very well known for, you know, founding Hedera, Hashgraph, uh, Reserve, and other multi-billion dollar businesses in, in the space. So he really has this special um, talent of spotting the right opportunity. Um, back then, we were thinking about designing a privacy coin uh, along the lines of Zcash and Monero. Um, but he kind of said it's not really the time. And actually, he it turned out to be correct because it was the end of the <laughs> crypto summer, crypto winter came in uh, right afterward. Um, but we kept in, in, in touch. Um, uh, very frequently. And then in 2021, uh, we started talking about uh, MPC, like um, using MPC and applying it to, to Web3. And um, we, we got really excited about some mathematical ideas I had been working on. And he brought in um, Alex Page, the CEO of, of Nillion, 
and Andrew Yo, the uh, chief, uh, chief uh, marketing officer. And we did some brainstorming as to how that piece of math, which is really abstract, could actually turn into, into a technology, into some platform or infrastructure uh, for, for Web3 applications. And, um, and that was the beginning of, of, of Nilion. And I guess the, the vision that we were you know, contemplating back then was kind of to tackle an uh, unwritten rule of the internet which is that every time you have to interact with a service provider in the internet, you have to give them a piece of yourself. You have to, you know, some, some details about yourself, your, your data, your personal identity will get transferred over to, to that company running that service. And it's, it's a moment in time that cannot be taken back. It's irreversible. So you've lost control of that information. They can do with it, whatever they want. And this, kind of permeates through the whole um, chain of actors. It doesn't only uh, affect users, it also affects companies and governments. And because of that, also many companies are, for example, not collaborating uh, because it means that they have to share information and there's you know reasons not to do that because you don't want to censor or share your sensitive data or maybe there's regulations that prevent you from doing that. So because of that, we live in an internet that is made of silos, siloed data, siloed information, and that is kind of um, um, stressing out the competitive side of, of businesses and people, but not the collaborative side of, of businesses and people. And that's that's what I what we like about decentralization, which it is community oriented, and that's why where we thought, well, well, this could be the the, the perfect match to get this technology, which is removing trust um, and adding this security so that you can, uh, you know, collaborate without sharing and now combine it with Web3, which is all about community and collaboration and also trust uh, trust minimization. This could be a perfect match. And, and we kind of then set ourselves to um, create this public decentralized um, platform for secure storage and compute of, 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 of sensitive information, whatever uh, that may, may be, you know, it can be from people, it can be from companies, from, from government. So that was, was a little bit kind of the thought process uh, that took us to, uh, or, or me in particular, to, to embark on this, on this adventure. Yeah, there's a, a lot to unpack in there. Um, yes. <laughs> so I think we can start by kind of giving a preface of what is MPC, MPC and maybe from here onwards, every time uh, you mention an acronym, we can kind of highlight what it means as well. Because I think a lot of people are not really familiar with a lot of the technologies that underpin what you guys are developing. So I think that's going to be uh, really helpful. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a very good idea. And, and actually, it's, it's a bit confusing the, you know, in Web3 because we talk about, to begin with, we talk about cryptography with two different meanings. One is the mathematical cryptography. The other one is the crypto space. So to begin with, there's a little bit of confusion there. Then people tend to think that cryptography, the math one, is just zero knowledge proofs, which is a very, it's the most prevalent um, privacy enhancing technology used nowadays in, in the Web3 space. And that's the reason why. But there's others. Uh, there's other um, P. PETs or, or PETs, um, privacy enhancing technologies, 
that are very interesting indeed. Um, you have fully homomorphic encryption, you have differential privacy, you have multi-party computation. So that takes us to this MPC um, acronym. What it means is, is any type of computation where there is many parties, so there's many nodes, each one controlled usually by a different um, company or entity, and they collaborate to compute jointly some sort of function or, or run together some sort of program, but with the caveat that they are not actually sharing the, the inputs that they contribute to for the execution of this program. So they're able to maintain the privacy or confidentiality of their inputs um, and come up with the result from that computation, but without really, um, you know, without really running it on a single computer. That That's one difference compared to other privacy-enhancing technologies like FHE. FHE, the typical setup, you have a client on a server, the server runs a computation, no one sees, the server cannot see the, the data it's, com it's computing on. But here we're talking about a network. So it is, that's why it is kind of closer to, to the decentralized notion uh, that we already see in, in Web3, where we typically have many, many nodes collaborating, uh, running a, a blockchain or, or some, some other sort of um, uh, construct. Yeah, awesome. Um, I think before we get more into the weeds of uh, those differences, can we get a brief overview, a high-level review of what it is, uh, what meaningless, and what it can do from like a practical standpoint? Yeah, so essentially it's a Web3 infrastructure. So meaning that there is not a single node um, that runs the whole thing, there's a network. And the network is, is not controlled by us. It's comprised of different nodes run by different entities. Um, you know, there's, there's a process for nodes to and kind of enroll into, into the network um, that we can, we can discuss if, if you want. But the, the idea is that we are not cont in control of, of, the, of the network, nor do we want to be in control of the project. So this project will be handed over to a, a Swiss association and that was that's where governance will will take place. That's where the important decisions going forward will will be taken, and token holders will will have a, a say in that. So it is a decentralized infrastructure. Now the difference compared to something like a blockchain is that we are here talking about um, general compute and storage. So we are tackling the problem of computing things um, on this infrastructure without sharing or revealing the information. Because the one thing that is typically missing from existing Web3 applications is that confidentiality. So many of them are public. What you put on a blockchain, everyone can see, and that has very good advantages because you can you can have um, traceability and you know auditability and things like that. So it is good for certain applications. But if you think about the typical application in Web two, without confidentiality, it wouldn't be you know it wouldn't be possible because you know if, if every, every user saw the information from other users, you you could you yeah I mean you, you couldn't build half of the businesses that you've built on Web two. So what we're trying to do is to bring in that that important ingredient into the Web three mix, so that now people can build that type of business 
that you would see on Web2 um, with, with that essential ingredient, which is confidentiality, but on a, on a decentralized infra infrastructure, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think that made a lot of sense uh, and, and it's awesome. So what what can emerge from that uh, sort of from what kind of possibilities can emerge from that? What are the practical things that can happen having that kind of capabilities on a technological level? So um, you can think of it from different angles, like from the Web3 angle. It's essentially about adding this confidentiality to it. So you can be thinking about private smart contract execution. You can be thinking about adding privacy to NFTs. You can be thinking about, um, you know, things like um, signatures or threshold signatures. Um, you can think, um, you know, about private voting, um, like the DAO management, but without really showing the information of who's vote, voting for what. So there's a number of applications you can you can find in in the space. Um, if you think beyond the current scope of of Web three, then you would be essentially thinking about adding the decentralization element to existing um, type of business applications or or business problems. Um, so there you're thinking about. Um, the problem of storing information, but without really wanting it to give it to to the company. So what you know, the, all the sensitive stuff. Can I store it somewhere that doesn't reveal it to a single entity, but is kind of maintained by a by a group of of nodes with enough guarantees as to the um, you know reliability and and um, uh, of the of the data and so on, but you can also go beyond that and say, well, actually, I, I not only want to store information, I also want to compute on it. So, I want to have my I don't know medical records, and I want to run computations or let companies run computations on my medical records. So there's a lot of examples on, on that front as well, and we're we're kind of tackling both, probably giving more importance to the Web three use cases first because of the community, they're really open to new technology and they're already used to the concept of decentralization, but we're not closing the door to, to the other type of, of use case as well. Yeah, I think that's really amazing. It's kind of best of the, both the best of the both worlds. You can have the decentralization aspect, but also have it privately done, which yes. is kind of like one of the main things that is missing. And that zero knowledge proofs are trying to address at the moment and cover this gap. But the kneeling approach is a sort of alternative to that that presents a perhaps more efficient way to compute it at a better speed. Yeah, I would say it's complementary to zero knowledge proof um, in the sense that zero knowledge proofs are, are really efficient and powerful. Um, but you need the prover. So you have a prover and a verifier. The prover has access to the information and proves some statement on that information uh, that the verifier can then check. For example, I can prove that, I don't know, um, my, my database has, um, uh, or, you know, the typical use case is that I prove that I'm older than 18 on a database of, of my personal information. But and, and this is great, but if you think about it in terms of computation, this is you're, you're outputting one bit. It's either true or false. So that kind of limits the type of computation you can tackle with zero-knowledge proof. Um, if you want to really have a primitive that allows you to store information and then do general compute on that information, and that no one 
there's not a, a single figure or, or, or role of a prover that has access to that information in plain text, then you can go and, and actually go for, for multi-party computation solutions because that's what they what they what they add to the mix. And actually they can be combined. So if you can you can generate zero knowledge proofs in such a way that there is no prover. So you decentralize the prover by applying MPC to it. And now there's no one really having access to the plain text information to generate this zero knowledge proof. It's actually the MPC network generating that um, that that generalist proof or, or playing the role of a prover. So in essence, they're, they're different. They're complementary. Each one is good at a different thing. Um, Zero-knowledge proofs can prove stuff, but MPC is closer to what we are used to think in terms of a place where I can store information and compute on it without revealing it to anyone. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and obviously, this is... Uh, this ability to do those type of uh, calculations is uh, something that we haven't had before. So what's underpinning this breakthrough? What, and how long have you been working on this? Um, for a while, <laughs> for, a, for a big while. Um, so we are, I mean, MPC is a, is a thriving, um, I would say, field. There's a lot of innovation, lots of interesting projects. Um, one of the important um, challenges um, is around the um, solving multiplications because every computation that you can think of can be broken down into additions and multiplications and existing protocols are really good at tackling additions so linear operations um, that involve additions with with of secret elements or multiplications but with public elements but the multiplication of, of private elements are is the problem so we focused on this problem and uh, came up with a way of, you know, uh, solving nonlinear parts or, or circuits or, or computations, meaning ones that have a lot of multiplications. And so what we see this innovation or where we see it play out is, is as a way of combining it with existing MPC technology so that now all those parts of the computation that are mostly linear can be tackled with um, the very efficient existing protocols but those parts which are really hard to solve because they involve a lot of multiplications, you can have this, um, this new cryptographic primitive that we are using um, um, to, to, to do that. Uh, so it's, it's like a way of um, so kind of addressing one of the uh, problems that MPC has and providing a new, a, a new means to, to tackle that, but also in a, in a way that we are combining it with existing MPC as well. Yeah, and what have been the, the biggest challenges on bringing this um, merge to life? So, yeah, that's, <laughs> it, it is, you know, one, one of the things is that um, this, this is very complex stuff. So you require experts on a different number of, of topics. Uh, so one is, is the academic um, kind of cryptographers, those are the ones who come up with new protocols and new mathematical ideas, and they write the proofs for the protocols, and they're actually aiming to advance the field theoretical foundations. Um, they are required because they are the, the initial spark that, you know, uh, create, um, end, up, end up in the creation of a technology. But, but then you need a number of people in between. So you need also to have applied cryptographers 
who are more kind of hands-on, uh, interested in specific solutions and with, you know, very practical knowledge and who understand nevertheless the output of the academic cryptographers, but are able to now frame that in terms of a more um, engineering solution. And then you need engineers. So there's a whole uh, roadmap of things that need to happen from the idea to actually that thing becoming a technology. And in that roadmap, there's a lot of uh, challenges. So it's not only the mathematical challenges that you need to address. Um, it's also the engineering challenges, like for example, um, how you know this, this mathematical um, theory is able to, to address um, computations in terms of addition and multiplications, as I, as I said before, or alternatively as Boolean circuits with AND gates and OR gates and so on. So this is a very low level type of computational solution. You need to raise the level in order to be, uh, in order for it to be useful. And that's the, the role of these applied cryptographers and engineers. And one of the things they have to come up with is, uh, is to write a compiler, something that, you know, ingests um, kind of high level descriptions of, of, of the problems that you want to compute on and then is able or are able to compile that down to that low level representation. And that in and of itself is a huge uh, challenge, the, the writing of efficient compilers um, that, I, that are able to bridge that um, abstraction gap. Um, and that's just one thing, uh, which is not even touching the network side of things. So now you want to deploy that on a network with many, many parties and that that, of course, adds another level of complexity because you need to handle communication between those parties. You need to handle the cases where parties are joining in or leaving the network. You need to handle cases where some of those parties are bad actors. They want to, on purpose, hijack your network. They want to either find secrets in your network or actually just mess up with your computations and they just want to change the result from computations. So there's a lot of aspects and angles that need to be addressed in order for something uh, abstract and initial to become actual technology that can be used by by people and those are <laughs> those are the challenges that you find uh, in that path it's almost like you have to find people that work on the intersection of different fields that are highly complex Yes. So it's almost as if like you're creating a new sort of a specialty in a way. Yeah. Like it's... you're operating the, the middle zone almost. Yeah, that's that's very, very accurate um, because, because it's, it's like different languages, right? So the mathematicians speak one language, the engineers another one, and the typical thing you would do to solve that situation is to put an interpreter in the middle. But there's, I, I don't think there's such a person who is really able to, to bridge that gap um, just with one person. So what you find instead is, is a number of people with varying degrees of, of expertise, uh, you know, or mix of, of knowledge between practical things and theoretical things. And then you need to move ideas from one end of the spectrum to the other end. And as they move, they start materializing themselves initially into prototypes, then into, you know, test nets, and then ultimately into, into production networks. Um, and this reminds me of this problem of, of the 
Um, it is like the telephone problem where you we, where you say a secret to one person, that person says it to another person, the other person to another person, and then the, the last person says the secret and it's completely changed. It's completely different. So that's the risk of this approach. Um, and that's why you need to tackle it with a very structured process in place where you actually have formal documentation at all stages and you have very well-defined um, um, uh, abstractions or, or artifacts that you're generating on, on each one of the stages. And ideally, when you see the end product, you're able to trace it back to the mathematical protocol and say, okay, this part here of the code is actually this part here on the math paper. So that you have the, the, the assurance or the guarantees that you're, you haven't introduced vulnerabilities along the way. But it's a very interesting problem indeed. Uh, it, it has, it has mm -hmm. to do. Yeah, I imagine your academic background came in really handy when you're trying to map out how to build this thing from the from the ground. Yes, um, as well as the of, of the engineering background that I also have from from working in, in real companies, um, because you really need also that that side of, of things. So you need to understand how a real engineering team works and what type of inputs do they require. Um, so yeah, I, I was previously CTO of a, of a tech company and, and that has helped a lot, uh, for sure. Yeah, I imagine. Um, I'd like to dive in a little bit on the, the main differences between Nilian and a traditional blockchain, because it's such a foreign concept for what the industry has now that I think is a good, uh, way to kind of conceptualize it is to um, compare it to something that people know really well. So we can dive in a little more on, on the differences and similarities there. Yeah. So essentially, um, a blockchain is about getting consensus on a state. So there is this notion of a shared state of a, of a ledger. A ledger is just a um, database you can think of it in terms of a database that contains transactions. And what nodes desire and wish for in this network is to agree on the state of that uh, ledger. And to do that, they run a consensus mechanism or, or algorithm um, that involves some sort of communication. So they kind of, there's different uh, ways of doing that. But essentially, at the end of that, uh, what, what they get is an agreement on the state of that ledger. Now, this MPC-based decentralized network is different to begin with because there is no single state. There's no global state that nodes need to agree on. Um, rather, there's groups of nodes that form clusters, and each one of them is operating in parallel. Um, and what they're doing is taking data in, in, in protected mode, so it's kind of um, in confidential mode, they're not leaking information, and outputting data out. So doing stuff with that data and outputting it. So you can think of it in terms of a, a real computer that has different threads or, or CPUs, and they're, they're actually like performing computations all the time in, in parallel. There is no need to reach this global consensus. There is no need for this global agreement which makes this network behave very differently because it can grow more organically. Uh, like you can set up new clusters without bothering the functioning of existing clusters because they're pretty independent. This is what Vitalik 
called uh, logic um, logical decentralization um, is in th is three axes. So there is um, the architectural decentralization, the political decentralization, and this is the logical decentralization. So it's the ability to break down the network in pieces and still get the the behavior you want out of it. If you break a blockchain in two, you have by definition of forking of the of the blockchain, and it's not properly functioning as one; it's functioning as two. But if you but but these uh, units that I'm talking about in MPC are really independent, are pr pretty independent. So these clusters are able to perform their tasks in a in a pretty independent way. So that's that's a major difference. The other one is is the purpose. So the purpose of the blockchain, as I said before is consensus on the state of a ledger. The purpose of um, MPC network, the centralized one, is to compute. Uh, that's it, to store data and compute on it without revealing information. And both can be combined, and both, I think, need each other. So MPC requires blockchain because it will have some, or, or the need for some coordination uh, between the clusters. And the best way to do that coordination is by using a blockchain so that there is certain consensus coming out of that blockchain that establishes, you know, kind of organizes the, 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 the clusters. But also MPC can help blockchain in, in a number of ways. Like it can add privacy or confidentiality to things that happen in a blockchain, starting from, from smart contracts or maybe the way you want to interoperate or connect different blockchains. You can add some privacy into that as well. So both are, are complementary again. Um, complementary concepts so it could act as even some sort of bridge between different blockchains if i'm correct yes um see if you if you set up a bridge that makes use of a um, smart contract that burns kind of uh, tokens on the one hand and you know meets them on the other side because you want to move tokens from one to the other one you could add privacy to that smart contract or if you want to move information, not just tokens from or, or events from one blockchain to the other one, you could also add some some confidentiality by by doing that on on on, on MPC technology. So that's one one example. And because it's centered around computation, that's the the main use case. You could also theoretically deploy private smart contracts on Nidian as well. Yes, uh, so Nilion is not the platform to deploy smart contracts, but you can think of it as a layer you can place um, on smart on existing smart contract platforms that can add privacy to to them. So the computations taking place inside of a smart contract, you could outsource them to to a Nilion network or or to an MPC network, do them in that domain, and then bring back the the, the result to the to the blockchain. So pretty much like a, like a ZK rollup could work, or you could think of, of that in terms of um, also an M, kind of M, MPC rollup. Um, although I would say that this use case is maybe um, not that interesting because ZK rollups are already very efficient and, and ZK technology can do all this stuff um, in, a, in a very efficient way. Um, but yeah, kind of ZK rollups are missing the confidentiality element, although they're using zero knowledge proofs, they're not using it for privacy. Um, and if you did need or require that privacy, then this kind of MPC based solution would be would be an answer would be definitely I think the, the best technology to tackle it. Yeah, yeah, I think the, the privacy aspect is definitely a, 
a very important piece that is missing at the moment in the whole ecosystem. Yes. Um, is there one particular use case that you are really excited about that you guys can bring to life or facilitate? So there's um, a, a difference between things we're doing and, and the thing I'm really excited about, which is kind of longer vision or, or longer term. So we're working with, uh, with a number of, of FEs. Um, um, we call them FEs. They're, they're, it means founder entrepreneurs. Those are um, people who want to start um, companies uh, on a decentralized infrastructure, and they want to do some sort of compute on it. And we are really excited with them. I'm not really um, allowed to, to talk about them too much in detail, but they're, they're really um, tackling interesting problems on different verticals. Um, ranging from identity to um, communication to um, um, healthcare, and they need specific parts of that solution to to have you know this trustless or trust minimized um, confidential infrastructure um, 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 under underpinning it. And so for that end, to that end, they're running things or they're going to be running things such as uh, biometric authentication. So you don't, you're not giving your biometric information to a central server. Uh, once you do that, you, I mean, that you cannot take it back and you cannot change your face or you cannot change your fingerprint, but rather you're storing that information in the decentralized network and are able to kind of work um, with, with the nodes together to perform computations on your, on your biometric information. Or you have things like, um, you know, Analysis on existing databases, like running cross-correlation averages and things like that uh, on, on data uh, that you have. Or you have um, uh, things like, um, you know, threshold signatures. Um, so those are things that are coming in that we see in our pipeline of existing FEs. Um, but the thing in, in more abstract terms that I'm excited about is um, providing technology that enables people to explore the collaboration aspect of, of you know, businesses and, and individuals. Because I think we're made of a mix of compete versus collaborate. And I feel that the existing infrastructure is um, emphasizing the compete aspect of it because there's no technology that allows you to collaborate in a safe way. And I think this type of technology could be that, uh, could, could offer that. And um, I hope to see in the future you know, new use cases coming in from individuals and companies and governments collaborating in ways that they haven't done before, because now they don't have to share information, but and yet they're able to to you know kind of work together, um, not all not always compete, but also kind of also collaborate um, to provide a better user experience or you know uh, for for the better of 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 the service. Yeah, I think the, the possibilities for the sharing of data and research is uh, endless and can can yield uh, fruits in any any sort of industry, any sort of uh, research field. If there's a way to share information in that trustless manner, so many fields would, would be able to explode, uh, pretty much all the fields uh, with yes. the amount of data. Yeah, I think it, it would be amazing. And one of the features that I think it's really cool about this new primitive is the fact that 
it doesn't really, I mean, it does to some extent, but uh, primarily it's not underpinned by encryption, but it's a uh, ITS. And if you can dive into that a little bit, I think that would be super interesting to hear about. Yeah, so there's different degrees of, of security um, in, in cryptography. Um, you know, obfuscation would be like a lower type of security where you're hiding some information, but not really with any guarantees. Uh, for example, yeah, that's what you do when you when you obfuscate um, a JavaScript code in, in the browser. You, I mean, you can you can kind of compile it to make it really hard to to read or understand, but you're not really preventing from you know its reconstruction. You're just making it very hard to to do. Um, then you have a lot of cryptography based on what's called computational uh, assumptions, and they're using some problem, mathematical problem that people know it's it's hard to solve, as the basis to construct or build the security of of some protocol. So that now you need to break or solve that problem if you want to um, attack the protocol, and that would be the case of you know, traditional encryption, the problem being in this case, the factorization of the product of two large prime numbers. So if you were able to, given a huge number that turns out to be the product of two primes, to find out those two primes, um, then you would be able to break um, some of, you know, that, that, that encryption. Uh, that, that type of uh, encryption is not quantum safe. So that computational problem in particular, and some others, are known to be solvable in an, you know, in, a, in an efficient way by future quantum computers. Then you you still have computational security, but which is quantum safe. So this time, it's still based on solving a, a you know the difficulty of solving a hard problem, but this time there is no known um, quantum protocol or, or algorithm that can crack it, and so it's like a higher degree of of security. And finally, you get another degree of security, which is called ITS, Information Theoretic Security, which means that um, there is no problem to solve, really. There's nothing to, 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 to tackle, to, to break. It's not based on the hardness of, of a problem, but rather is based on the ability to eliminate completely information from certain parts of the, of the protocol. And one simple... Um, Exponent of this or, or, or example of this is Shamir secret sharing, which is a way to break a secret down into different pieces. And it can be proven that if I'm given one of those pieces, um, actually, even if I'm given a few of them, there's nothing I can do with those to be able to learn anything about the secret that is hidden, you know, through that partitioning of, 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 of it in, into pieces. So, and, and this statement that there's nothing I can do, it, you know, really applies to the cases where I'm equipped with infinite computational resources and power. So it's a very powerful security um, argument and is, is kind of the golden standard uh, in security. And there is some part of the technology of, of Nilion. So in this case, um, this, this protocol that we're talking about, that does offer this, this, um, this level of security. Which makes it really interesting. Um, in other, you know, among other things, for the for the application to to personal information, information that you really by no means want it to be um, 
you know, broken into or, or, or hacked, uh, even if people have enough economical resources to, to do that. And it's also helpful for compliance purposes, because sometimes regulations uh, forbid the use of um, things or, or encryption mechanisms that are reversible, that you can actually break in some way or form, like uh, regular encryption. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And you gave this example of uh, Shamir, and I think you'll be interested to make a comparison with uh, secure multi-party computation, uh, because, you know, the, they're kind of like the two parts, if I understand it correctly, that you kind of uh, use to come up with the, the Neelium breakthrough. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... There's essentially three ways of building an MPC protocol. One is with Shamir type of technology. So it's called linear secret sharing. So you use it as the baseline and then you build an MPC protocol. The other one is FHE, fully homomorphic encryption. Again, you use it as the baseline and then you build the MPC protocol. And the other one is garbled circuits, um, which is another type of, of uh, solution. So the linear secret sharing based solution is using typically Shamir. And uh, what we did is to combine Shamir um, or our linear secret sharing scheme with another one that comes more from the FHE part. It's not fully homomorphic, but it has multiplicatively homomorphic properties. That, that's what we call a particle. And it's a cryptographic primitive that you can think of in terms of as encryption, but with um, ITS properties that hides information uh, turns it into ciphertext, and then you're able to multiply those ciphertexts. And what you're doing under the hood is multiplying the plaintexts that they're hiding. So you don't need to see the plaintext messages to be able to multiply them. So that's what's called multiplicative homomorphic properties. So this technology we're, that we're talking about actually combines those two primitives. Usually Shamir was used on the secrets directly, but we're using instead particles on the secrets and then the decryption key, which is what we call the blinding exponent. That's the thing that goes into Shamir. So we are actually combining those two primitives. And in doing so, we're able to, to tackle the problem of, you know, addressing multiplications because this particle encryption uh, scheme has these multiplicative homomorphic properties. It's very good at multiplications. And because we, we use the Shamir on operations that are only linear, that are never requiring multiplications, only additions, we are using it on the efficient side of the spectrum. Uh, so we were able to come up with a combination that is efficient in, in, in terms of um, what each primitive is able to do. And you can think of it in terms of somewhere in between linear secret sharing type of MPC protocols and uh, maybe a little bit of um, homomorphic encryption based type of, of protocols. Yeah, that, that sounds like uh, you need so much context to kind of merge those things together. Um, yes, it's, it's not, it's not, well, it's on the other hand, is on the one hand, it's not trivial, but on the other hand, it's also not very complex to see because it's ITS technology and ITS is actually easier to understand because it just relies on algebra rather than on, on more advanced mathematical concepts. So it's not actually not that hard to see. And one of the things we want to 
show is, is we, we, we want to publish a, a, a mini, what we call a mini paper that actually um, kind of tells the, the story of, of this technology or, or the, the maths of this technology, but in a way that are hopefully accessible to a larger um, community, larger, not, not just special, specialized cryptographers, but also kind of general developers who understand a little bit of maths. Why do you think this kind of approach hasn't been implemented before? Um, there's been a lot of work on on the linear side of, of protocols. And then on the nonlinear side, uh, people tend to work with um, FHE or with uh, garbled circuits. So it's like the from the three approaches, the first one has been left mostly to solve linear operations. But the other two, and, and for the nonlinear operations, the other two are used. But the other two have also like additional complications, like FHE um, is, is and it has very heavy machinery. So it kind of, it's it's low when you evaluate a circuit using FHE. And garbled circuits, the evaluation is fast, but it requires a long, a large representation of, of the circuit. And so very little has been done, um, I think, on, on the LSSS side to to maximize those those multiplications, so that efficiency of those multiplications. And, and, and also people, have maybe not com tried to combine, um, you know, elements from homomorphic encryption with elements from LSSS, from linear secret sharing to tackle this problem. Maybe they have focused on more on, you know, building kind of pure solutions either on the one side or on the other side of, of, of these uh, two categories. That's kind of one way to think about it. Yeah, so it's... Uh something to do with like the, the siloed nature of when you get um, really specializing to some sort of um, field, do you think? And then that just kind of lends itself to you want to build more on, on what's already existing rather than just merging things that that are kind of separate in a way? Yeah, that's it. Um, you know, each field is very complex. And so there is barely, you know, there's very few experts who are able to innovate in one field and in the other. So each, typically they focus on one um, and that leaves this combination of things uh, more unexplored um, because because of the difficulty of, of yeah, merging, merging things uh, and ideas together. At what point did you start to see this uh, relationship that could be, or this bridge that could be built? When, when those kind of thoughts started emerging, what was the, the process of kind of having a, feeling that there could be something made here into fleshing it out? Um, it was an iterative process. So it was a trial and error um, of many things, um, many weird um, pathways that took to nowhere um, because the number of possibilities is, is very large. So it looks pretty much like um, finding a needle in a haystack because you're, you're you know, kind of doing a branched search, you take one decision, you make one decision here, it takes you nowhere, then you take one step back, make the other decision. Um, is this type of mazed, um, prob you know, f uh, problem solution or, or finding where, where you try to find the, the the exit of a maze. And there's a lot of trial and errors uh, as well. The only thing that is an advantage here is that you 
the trial and error takes place on, on paper. You don't need to build stuff to to realize if it works or not compared to other disciplines like medicine, where you really need to test the meds uh, against, you know, in a living tissue of cells and then in animals and so on. So the process goes much faster, but it's a process of, of you know, brute force trial and error and yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense uh, because I was trying to imagine how do you arrive at a conclusion and it just sounds like it would be a very uh, arduous process. Um, but I'm, I'm glad you, you figured it out. I'm really excited to, to see it um, being developed and, you know, being able to, people being able to um, use it for things. And with that being said, what are the, and what stage are you in right now into developing it? So we have um, an existing network. Um, the, at this stage, is um, all the nodes are controlled by us. So we call that um, kind of a DevNet. And soon we'll be moving to a testnet where we will invite the FEs we've been working with. And then the ultimate step is to open that to the wider audience. Um, so it's not going to be long, but um, um, but it's yeah, it's, it's kind of the three steps we're taking in our roadmap. And, um, and, and essentially that's, that's kind of the technology level at a more strategic level. Um, we've been busy building this, um, initial network, and now we are kind of, um, changing years. We are, um, taking a step towards, um, you know, opening what we've built to the community and yeah, that's what we're going to be publishing a number of, of, um, mini papers, we call them. Um, each one with uh, prototypes of you know different aspects of the technology in in you know public repos, so that people can still st start playing with that um, technology. Some of them are about core ideas or kind of more mathematical ideas, like um, a first paper we're going to be publishing um, um, very uh, I mean uh, uh, very soon, and. Um, and the and, and the other ones will be more about um, essentially ex, uh, giving examples of how to use uh, those core ideas in specific verticals in specific use cases, and they also will come with uh, with Python code, and so that's that's we're really excited about this because it's kind of a, a turning point in the company where we're gonna start um, opening a lot of things to to the community and. Hope to get a lot of feedback from the community and collaboration, um, collaboration starting with with uh, community. Um, yeah, so that's that's really where we are. Awesome. Do you have a timeline or an estimated date where people are going to be able to try to build things on Alien? So it's going to be like um, uh, progressive. Like for example, on on the on on. <clears throat> On you know on the week of the seventh of November, we're getting this first paper published with some um, some code already, so people can start playing with that code. Uh, if people want to, you know, kind of build um, beyond that and also kind of test our, our internal network, they can always approach us as as uh, FEs. Uh, and but then, as I said before, the idea is to actually end up opening that infrastructure to to people. Um, on a number of stages. So it's hard for me now to say which dates for each one of those stages, but what I can say is that um, it's going to happen very soon. Awesome. 
and you mentioned the FEs uh, quite a few times. So how does it look like? Um, is it a program? How does it structure like if someone wants to approach you guys to become one of the founding entrepreneurs? How does that work at the moment? Yeah, so it's a very simple process. You actually express interest. Um, just send an email to, um, for example, um, andrew.yo um, or a at million.com um, for, you know, to make it easier and um, express interest that you want to join the program. And then essentially uh, what you can do is uh, start building with us. So we will tell you what is the infrastructure that is built, what are the things that you can work with. Um, we receive also information from your problem, the problem you want to tackle. If there's things that we don't cover yet, then we factor that in into our roadmap so that we can uh, address those um, in, a, in a short term and actually provide you with the sufficient um, features to, to solve your problem. And that's it. It's the beginning of a normal collaboration where you can have early access to, to the technology and the infrastructure that we're building. Awesome. It's been a pleasure having you here and have you explain and kind of share the new exciting things you guys have coming on. I'm super excited to see uh, things evolve and all this ecosystem coming to life and being integrated with all kinds of different businesses from Web3 and Web2 and everything in between. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for having me here. It's, it's really uh, a great pleasure. Um, speaking to you and um, and yeah, we're really excited um, because of the moment this time represents. Um, we're releasing, as I said before, this this mini paper. Um, so I think by the time this podcast will be published, we'll be already out there. So please do check it out. You, you can find it pinned on our Twitter account and just join the conversation. Uh, we'll be glad to to have you there.